This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. In this episode, the Burgess Foundation's Andrew Biswell speaks to the writer and journalist Robert McCrum about his new book, Shakespearean. Robert McCrum was the editor-in-chief of Faber and Faber for nearly 20 years and the literary editor of The Observer between 1996 and 2018. His acclaimed memoir, My Year Off, describes his experiences of suffering a severe stroke, after which he discovered that the only words that made sense to him were snatches of Shakespeare. His new book, Shakespearean, finds its beginnings in these personal experiences, but expands into an exploration of Shakespeare's poetry and plays that seeks to understand them within their historical context and explore the secrets of literary inspiration. Robert, you said that reading Shakespeare helped you to recover from a serious illness, the stroke you had in 1995. Could you say a bit more about how that worked and and what precisely was the engagement with Shakespeare, what what you took from his writing that that you found helpful in that situation? I think there are two things here, Andrew, really. First first of all, um, he's somebody who is, in in his plays, is drawn to jeopardy and risk and character in extremis and if you're if you're convalescent from a serious illness you are by definition a character in extremis so there's a sympathy there and there's an interest in in how he addresses that the other thing is you don't have to read the plays in full to get as it were consolation from them because they there'll be, there'll be speech individual speeches there'll be speeches in hamlet or speeches in Anthony and cleopatra speeches in coriolanus which will speak directly to you and so you can so the, the so that that the, the, like these little nuggets which you can enjoy. It also, if you're finding finding it difficult to concentrate, as I did when I was initially recovering, hard to concentrate on on a whole book, you can you can read three or four pages of Shakespeare, and it's it's very it's very restorative actually. One of the arguments of your book um, is that Shakespeare is our contemporary. He, he's a writer who speaks to us in a way that's of our time, not necessarily of his time, and I wonder how you define that timeless quality that you've identified, that you find, especially in his plays? Well, I think it's, it's, to, it's, to, do with, it's to do with a variety of themes which I've, I, which I've identified in the book, because in some ways he's also, he's also somebody who invented the way in which we see ourselves, and he, is, he was really the first poet, playwright, writer who addressed the issue of the self, which we're very familiar with, but... Um, in in its own day, first of all the sonnets, and then ultimately the, the the breakthrough of Hamlet, which is a play about the self, Hamlet's self, that was absolutely revolutionary. And so, at one level, he's there are there are there are big themes in Shakespeare. That's one one very good example. But then the the other the, the, another level there is, as I've said, there's his fascination with, with risk and danger, and characters in extremis. That speaks to us because we, we know about that. We we live in, in disrupted times, and and funnily enough, I was working on the book for the last two or three years um, during a time of you know violence and and um, danger of all sorts globally and financial disturbances. And then the one the one thing which was missing, which was very much of Shakespeare's time, which is plague, finally turned up this spring. So in a way, I've got a full house now. All the things that he, he 
he was addressing and was familiar with are things that were familiar. And were you surprised by how relevant the work seemed as you worked on the book? Did did things come into focus that perhaps you'd not seen before? Was your sense of that sharpened? Somebody, somebody said that we don't read Shakespeare, he reads us, but, which is one of those sort of clever phrases, which is, and I'm not sure it means very much, but there's a sense in which he does he does interrogate, he makes us, he, he see, appears to interrogate us. That's, that's really the, the, the mystery of his genius. But um, there's a range of sympathy, there's a range of interest, and there's a range of focus on, on various kinds of drama, classic classical drama, which is, as it were, timeless. Anthony Burgess, as you know, wrote a novel about Shakespeare's love life titled Nothing Like the Sun, and a biography which was published 50 years ago in 1970. A very good one. I actually credit it. It's a very good book. Well, it was very good to see you quoting from uh, from the, the, the novel and the biography. I wanted to ask you how you think Burgess's Shakespeare books stand up after all those years. Well, I think the, um, the, 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 the fiction, Nothing Like the Sun, is very entertaining, and it's typically by Jesse, and it's sort of slightly, slightly mad. It's slightly over the top, and it's full of fantastic insights because Burgess was, uh, as well as you know, he was a, he was a, a deeply reflective, he was a, you know, he's a writer's writer, and he would have, he would have had a, an understanding of Shakespeare, the writer, um, through his own gifts. And I think, and I think his his reading of of the mysterious character of William Shakespeare is very much one of his greatest achievements. Yeah, he he projects, I think, something of himself uh, onto Shakespeare. He he decides, I think, from the uh, references to spaniels that Shakespeare was not a dog lover, um, and he decides as well that he he yeah. had a fine tenor voice. And uh, I I've always suspected that this is Burgess maybe introducing elements of himself into the portrait. Yeah. I think I think we all I think we all do that. I mean, all, everyone who writes about Shakespeare ends up finding a little bit in a little bit of Shakespeare, um, which is a kind of vanity, but it's quite an entertaining vanity. Um, but I think that Burgess's intuition about, particularly his end. I mean, I quote his his uh, Burgess's summary of, of Shakespeare's end, uh, his last last years, and I think it's very much on the money um, about the sense that he was. He wasn't a vain man. He wasn't. He wasn't. He didn't consider himself to be the. He didn't need to have acclamation. He just. He just. He just faded away. You also quote uh, Borges to the effect that Shakespeare is many people and no one, and that raises again the question of whether or not we can ever know Shakespeare, or if it's always a case of projecting our own preoccupations onto him. He is a mirror. In the way that you know, a, a, music, a composer of genius like like um, Mozart is a, is a kind of a mirror, um, and we see ourselves in these in these in these artists of great genius. That's that's their gift to us in a way, um, and I don't think we'll ever. Of course, you know, we're never going to find his letters or his diaries. That 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 chance is long gone, and so he. But he's somebody we can intuit. Um, through the through the fragments that, that are left behind. Back in the 1990s, I can remember from being a student, we had this image of Shakespeare as transgressive, subversive, anti-establishment. Um, and then reading more widely, you see that he's also been identified as a pillar of the establishment, someone who set out to legitimize the Tudor mm-hmm. monarchy. Mm-hmm. I wonder how you would reconcile these very different political Shakespeare's who've emerged through writing about him. There's a political Shakespeare. There's the personal Shakespeare. There's the theatrical Shakespeare. There's the re- reclusive. Per- you know, he's a man of parts, 
And you, if you if you pitch him into the court, you see that the public Shakespeare. When it, but when you see him with the sonnets, you see a you know, the private man. And I think you know. I think when I when I think about Shakespeare, I think about someone that I knew quite well, someone like Seamus. I, I mean, I knew Burgess as well, but he's not quite the same character. But Seamus Heaney, who was a very very famous public poet in Ireland, and handled that. I mean, I saw him handle it on a number of occasions with great grace and brilliance was also a deeply private man and could be very, you know, he could be very reflective and thoughtful and quiet. And I think that Shakespeare was somebody who, when he was on stage or when he was in the, in the arena of the globe or in the, in the arena of the court or with his fellow playwrights in, 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 a, in a barn in Southwark, in a pub in Southwark, he'd be one kind of character. And when he was sitting at his desk, he was another kind of, he was he was different. So I think he's, 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 you know, he's infinitely various. It's very interesting that you mentioned the poems and the sonnets, which sometimes get overlooked by people who are in search of Shakespeare. Burgess, too, took that as his starting point. The plot of Nothing Like the Sun is in many ways, it's built around the, the, this narrative that, that he discovers in the sonnets. Um, I, I wonder if there's a, a distinction that, that you would draw between the Shakespeare of the the narrative poems uh, and the, the sonnets and the love poems, as against this um, this dramatic series of voices, the, these um, monologues and dialogues that that you find in the plays. Well, you, you, I think that's there's some truth in that, but there's also the tr- there's also the fact that what he does in his lo- in the long poems is he treats the poems like a play, and the, so so the drama of the sonnets is a dramatic drama, which he almost dramatizes but doesn't quite and it's rape of lucrece and venus and adonis they are full of these set piece scenes i mean they're poetry but they're set they're dramatic scenes and he he is somebody who instinctively creates drama wherever he goes out of out of everyday life so i think in a way i wouldn't really set these these two positions to get i'd say that that they are they're two sides of the same coin really you begin the book with Marlowe and the, this, the discovery in Cambridge of this portrait, which is thought to be potentially a portrait of Christopher Marlowe and your father's involvement in that discovery. Um, and Burgess, too, as we know, was, was fascinated by Marlowe and got another novel out of him, um, the, the Dead Man in Deptford, towards the end of his life. Um, and it, it's very interesting to make that comparison, as you do, between um, Marlowe, who was... Enormous news, clearly, in his lifetime. Um, and yet Shakespeare's come to eclipse him and his reputation. And you also suggest that Shakespeare was, in some sense, quite haunted by Marlowe and his example. Um, and I wonder if you could say a bit more about the way in which, um, or the reasons why, Shakespeare has become this great cultural monument and Marlowe, though he's not unknown, doesn't really occupy the same stature within our culture. He's, a, he's been eclipsed, although. At the point of the point at which he dies, as I've said in the book, the point at which he he's he's killed, he is a theatrical and poet poetic superstar in a way that Shakespeare wasn't. And lots of people have said, including Stanley Wells, the Shakespeare scholar, if Shakespeare had died at the same time that Marlowe had died, we'd remember Marlowe. Um, so you what you have is that you know the ironies of of or the vicissitudes of of literary posterity. Marlowe in his lifetime was this gigantic figure. The man, really, who invented Elizabethan theatre, 
it was Shakespeare who, who then who then sort of put it put it to work and brought it to life. And I think the big difference between them, although there are lots of similarities in their backgrounds, I mean, Marlowe grew up in Canterbury, he was the son of an artist, and whether Shakespeare grew up in Stratford was the son of a, a, a glove maker. Um, Marlowe's father was a cobbler. Um, and there are lots of similarities, but the big difference is that Marlowe goes to Cambridge and, you know, the story behind the portrait which you've alluded to is, it's all, all that's all true, we don't know that it was. I mean, the, the, there is the strong suggestion that it was him, but there's, there's no proof. He's just he's just a young man in fashionable clothing um, with a, with a, a Latin epigraph attached. <clears throat> but going to Cambridge cut him off from, as it were, common the vernacular. It pitched him into a world of Latin and Greek and Latin and Greek themes and ideas and models. And so he became classicized in a way that Shakespeare, Shakespeare always remains a man of the people. Marlowe goes to court, becomes a spy, and he's steeped in the classics. His plays are shot through with classical tags, and his plays themselves are st- quite static, I mean, dramatically. Shakespeare is always mobile, and that's because he's, he's, he inhabits the lives of the characters on stage in a way that Marlowe doesn't. On, in, a, on a, in a Shakespeare play, every character is he is attuned to the inner lives of all the characters, and you can read you know, the third murderer, or the um, or the, or the, or the second uh, Ostler in Henry the Fourth, whatever it is. You can you, you can look at these, these tiny characters, and they all have characters. Marlowe doesn't, doesn't do that. He has these these really cardboard figures. Who declaim fantastic poetry, but it's not. It doesn't relate to everyone's experience. Is the difference? Shakespeare is very much grounded in, in the reality of everyday life. He's for he. You know, he lives in the city. He lives in the, in the heart of the city of London. He's beset by all kinds of perils, and he knows what ordinary life is like. And Marlowe doesn't doesn't deal with that. And that's the big difference. You you um, at various points in the book, you write about the the portraits of Shakespeare. Um, which have survived, some of them speculative. There's obviously the, the grave sculpture in Stratford as well. What can we learn from, from, from reading these? Uh, are, they, are they texts which, uh, which help us to understand the work or are they in some sense red herrings, do you think? Well, I think, I mean, I think every, every generation will find a Shakespeare image that they want to... The, currently, the, the, the so-called Chandos portrait is the one with the earring, is the, is the, is the popular one. You know, he speaks because he, he seems to us more contemporary. He's, he feels like somebody you could meet in the street, and he's quite raffish and slightly foreign looking. And there's no proof that it's him, and it doesn't bear much relationship to the other six portraits that we know about. Um, the, one of the problems is that because he predeceases the editors of the first folio, and indeed many of the actors that he. he um, had worked with and, and, and developed his career with at the Globe, is that there clearly was a there, were a there was a small group of people in the late 1610s and early 1620s who would have had a pretty clear idea of what he was like. So that, for example, when the first folio is, is, is published and there's the Martin Dreschot, um image on the on the title page, this is this is an image which was commissioned by people who remembered Shakespeare. And so it, it must have 
it, it might have been a bad lightness, but it's still a kind of a lightness. And, and that's the big difference is that um, all the images that date up to the 1620s, and there are th- three of them, I think, not all of them, by any means, and then there are copies which get passed on later on. Um, all those early images, they but they bear them. They they would have passed the sort of sniff test amongst Shakespeare's contemporaries. They'd say, they'd say oh, that Will Will wasn't like that, but you know we, they can see what the, what the artist is getting at. Marlowe, he has no idea what what he was like. It's very interesting with the um the the portraits when Burdis is looking at the um the, the sculpture on Shakespeare's tomb. Uh, he says this man was obviously an idiot who who had syphilis as well, and and he's constructing a biography out of what he sees. Mm. Now, when you look at the great monument of scholarship that's accrued around Shakespeare, some of the editions where there are maybe one or two lines of text at the top of the page, and then a, a double column of learned footnotes um, beneath. Does that inspire you? Does that depress you? How helpful do you find the the, the huge um, monument of scholarship that, that that's now? Um, yeah. Well, I think I think all all those. I mean, the Arden edition is the one which is stuffed full of those kinds of footnotes, and you always find nuggets. There always there always things there to delight and entertain. Um, but it, it is it is angels dancing on the head of a pin. It, it's um. It's an obsession with the minutiae of the work, and not the, you know, it doesn't look at the big picture. I mean, it, it's it's trying to um, elucidate the mysteries of the text, and there are texts that is very very clotted with meaning, and clotted with allusion, and reference, and topicality. I mean, he, he was somebody who was writing right to the moment. In every play, he wrote, every, virtually every play has got there. Are, I've mentioned *Midsummer Night's Dream*. *Midsummer Night's Dream* probably came out in 1595 after a very bad summer. And the bad summer is in the play. Um, when Essex heads off to Ireland in 1599, um, there's a reference to that in Henry V. He never misses an opportunity to make a topical reference to, to appeal to a contemporary audience. Uh, so he's very, he's very attuned to the moment. And I think those footnotes you describe, and there are, there are so many of them, Speaks to that, and you know they give academics I mean, academics perform a very important function, um, but they're not they're never going to bring back the experience of the play in the moment. The director does that, not the scholar. You spoke earlier about the Englishness of of Shakespeare um, as against Marlowe's Latinity, perhaps, and I wonder if you think of his work as being English. Or being universal. I mean, how well do the plays travel into different cultures and different languages? They they they, they get performed all over the world. All I mean, literally. All, I mean, a play like Hamlet crops up in, in in Arab cultures, Japanese cultures, Russian, you name it, everywhere, because they are they are universal. These are universal themes, and he he provides a so they're universal themes, but they're English in their sympathy and their taste. And that's that's the, the the nice combination. I didn't really go into this in, in the in the book, but there are these very big themes, but they're refracted through a certain quality of mind, which I would characterise as English. Which is there's a kind of sympathy, there's a there's a, a democratic spirit, a libertarian spirit, a generosity towards the common common man, man and woman, um, which I would think of as a very typically English. 
um, and it's 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 a it's a, a sympathy inspired by a life which had begun in a small country town in the middle of England. You know, he knew ordinary people, and and he, and he he knew ordinary people, and he wrote for ordinary people, and he wrote for decent, good people who went to the play, and who wanted to see something of that on the stage. He, at the same time, it would be wrapped up in these extraordinary visceral dramas of hatred and greed and so forth and destruction. So that so all the plays are both one thing and another at the same time. There's clearly a great enthusiasm for people to to seek out Shakespeare. I was in Stratford not long ago and standing outside Shakespeare's house, um, watching the people coming and going and having their selfies taken and going into the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got me thinking, are you ever going to find him there in, in the house where he, he grew up uh, or, or is it in the theatre? I mean, what's the what, what approach would you recommend for, for a reader who wanted to seek him out? As you were saying earlier on, you know, there are many Shakespeare. There's the domestic Shakespeare, there's the public theatrical Shakespeare, there's the private poet, there's the dramatist who would, who would give the epilogue at the end, of the end of the play. There's a man who's used to standing in front of a big crowd, there's a man who is used to talking to a noble in a corridor in, in Whitehall. Um, there are many different, there are, he has many different lives. And I think to find, you know, one of the things that we all love to do now when we go to festivals and so forth is we love to see the writer in you know in in three in three we we get a three dimensional encounter with a writer in a festival um and when we look for shakespeare that's the kind of thing we're trying we're trying to achieve it's a will of the wisp i mean it's he's long gone um and actually the world in which he grew up in is and i've made this point at the beginning when i'm talking about marlow is so foreign to us in a way that the world of milton is not so far, which is only 40 years later, 40, 50 years later, is not so far. And the world of, of Milton and Dryden and the Restoration playwrights is a million miles from the world of Shakespeare and Marlowe. And something happened at, uh, at the turn, <coughs> turn of the 16th, 17th century. And it's a step change. It's a really significant sh- shift in consciousness, ideas, technology, all kinds of um, philosophy, science money, capitalism, all these things change in in the the year 1600 to 1620. Um, So by the time he's dead, the world in which he'd grown up in, the world in which he was partly writing about, a world of mystery and superstition and incredible violence and cruelty, um, is gone and darkness. You said this is not a book for academics and scholars, though you hope they might learn something from looking at it. What kind of reader do you have in mind for Shakespearean? Well, I, I think someone like you, Andrew, in a funny way, um, who, who no, you're, you're not a Shakespeare scholar, I didn't no. think. Um, you're, you're a scholar. Um, but, you know, the general, gen, gen, generally interested reader. Um, um, you know, people that, like, like, you know, like many of my friends who, get, who, um, who would go to the occasional play. I mean, I'm struck by how interested people are in Shakespeare. And it's a book for them, really. It's a it's a it's a book a book celebrating his Englishness, celebrating his extraordinary variety and his genius. I mean, at the end of the end of the day, we're left the thing that we're, we're left sort of skirting around at the bottom of is this like it's like I think Henry James used the image somewhere, but it's like you're standing at the foot of a tree, 
and you can you can just about walk around the trunk of the tree, but above you are branches and branches and branches and leaves, a, a, a multiplicity, a profusion of growth and liveliness and activity, which you can never begin to encompass. Well, one of the things I've enjoyed about reading your book is your obvious enthusiasm for the material, and also the way that you've you've mm. framed quite well-known narratives, but but reframed them in a way that, that's very arresting and, and fresh to, uh, to, to rediscover, you know, um, a writer you, you thought you knew, but, but plainly, you know, I didn't know him as well as you do. Um, well, I think, I think he's there, he's there, he is there to be found. Um, and I, I, I could probably pick up the collected works in a year's time and find a whole other narrative. Which, which I've missed this time around. But I mean, I, I, mean, I, I'm, I think I'm, I'm done. I think the, the, what I've done is I'm quite pleased with, with good chunks of it. Um, not all of it by any means. I think you put your finger on the Brexit stuff is um, it, it, sort of inevitable, but also it's crowd-pleasing, but it's also quite trivial. Uh, I think, but there, there, there are things in there which are, are not trivial, or, or, but which are sort of deeper. And I was particularly, I thought, I particularly thought I liked the end of it. I felt like I, when I when I got to writing the end, writing about him at the end, I felt as though I sort of knew him better than I had done at the beginning. So that on that sense, in that sense, there was a journey I'd been on. But you know, everyone goes on their own journey with, with him. And um, we, the extraordinary thing is, you know, he is our national playwright, and he's he is somebody of astonishing grandeur and importance. Well, I think this book certainly deserves its place on the same shelf as the Burgess Shakespeare biography. Oh, thank you very much. That, that, that's, that's, a, that's good enough for me. I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. If it can sit next to Anthony Burgess um, and, and hold, its, hold its head up next to um, his biography, which, of course, as you well know, had quite a history to it behind it, uh, not, not least being possibly being the basis for a film, which never happened. Um, but if, if it can be put next to anything that Burgess wrote about Shakespeare, I should be very, very pleased. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you about it. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And um, I look forward to seeing you again soon, I hope. You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Robert McCrum's book, Shakespearean, on life and language in times of disruption, is published by Picador and available now in all good bookshops. For more information about the Burgess Foundation and Anthony Burgess, visit www.anthonyburgess.org.